This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Aaron O'Toole, the former conservative leader um, of Canada, uh, put a substack together yesterday. He has a substack and he wrote, I met with David Johnston for his report. Here's what happened. I highly recommend the read. Today is the day we should get his report, whether or not there should be a special inquiry. We also played you a clip from Robert Fife being on the West Block with Mercedes Stevenson, where I think he kind of laid out how does Johnston get around the idea of slapping hard uh, Justin Trudeau and, and the liberal government? And how does he get around the idea that he's like, I didn't find anything? <laughs> What's the middle ground for David Johnston at that point in time? It's a really interesting debate. When we go back in time to mid-February and think about all the things that have happened and all the things we've learned, like like I always say this, nothing remains static. Things go one direction or the other. Something grows, something, you know, dissipates. The idea that there has been foreign interference in our elections and in our, uh, you know, it's, it's wide-ranging and it's like, well, how do you define democracy? But if you were to lay it out there, China's interfering in our democracy. I guess you'd start with elections and then you'd go to policy and then you just go plain to people Um, because everybody is going to have their influences. Everybody, anybody who wants to run for politics says, I want to run for this, that and the other. I want to have a sphere of influence because of this. This is someone that is going to be influential to me in how I craft policy or how I vote or how I stump or how I campaign. All that's all that's fair game, all that's fair play, but not like this. And that's the big question that David Johnson has to answer today. Here's the initial announcement. This goes back to closer to late February now, early March, with the Prime Minister of Canada announcing that there's going to be a rapporteur. But before I note this, it's important to note that there was a lot of days prior to where it didn't look like this was going to transpire. The Chinese government and other regimes like Iran and Russia have attempted to interfere not just in our democracy, but in our country in general, whether it's our institutions, our businesses, our research facilities, or in the daily lives of our citizens. Right. Uh, Absolutely true. So there's a lot of levels of interference. And that's exactly what, what David Johnson's job is, what his job has been to do is to look at reports from the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. A lot of, you know, calls for a public inquiry are coming because there's clearly um, leaks coming from CSIS, but CSIS is doing that because they say we can't get answers any other way. We can't make the public understand the seriousness of this in any other capacity. We can close doors all we want and have meetings, and we can send emails, and we can make phone calls. But if they're not taken seriously by the sitting government, then we've got a problem. And then as it it flared up two weeks ago, then there's the case, plain and simple, of conservative MP Michael Chong finding out he's a target of Chinese interference. And again, we don't know all the parameters. His family here, relatives back in Hong Kong. Where? When? Why? Important questions that Michael Chong would want answered. I'd want them answered if I was the prime minister. I would want to have that out there to say, I didn't know about this, but that's going to be the big question here. If he did, he's not going to want the answers out there. He's not going to want this report to be very forthcoming. I'll read you quickly some of what Aaron O'Toole wrote. He met with the right Honorable David Johnston, as he calls him, 
And uh, and he's got some skepticism here. I'll read from his substack to set the scene. Mr. Johnson did not reach out to the conservative party, my office or Pierre Pauly Evers office until the final week of his initial ass- assignment. He waited until the very end to meet with the current and former leaders of the party that had been the central target of the foreign interference. He was charged with investigating. I think if you add this up, Johnson had was at has been at this seven weeks, maybe eight. So the first six of seven or seven of eight, I I'd have to look it up and we're in a conversation right now, so I can't. Um, but it, that's that seems sketchy to me. If I'm to back to the Substack, if I'm to believe media reports, Johnson interviewed the Bloc Québécois leader about events alleged to have taken place in B.C. and Ontario, where Mr. Blanchet ran no candidates before he finally got around to me or the present conservative leader. This makes no sense. O'Toole uh, goes on to say, I was l- right I was left with the clear impression my meeting was nothing more than a box-checking exercise. I shared with them detailed examples of my concerns and how I believed intelligence leaks and interference were the result of many years of inaction by the prime minister and senior officials and a steady erosion of trust with their security agencies charged with doing important work in our national interest. I was not really asked any questions or given any insights. It was a very strange meeting. He's pretty skeptical about this process. Here's one more from Justin Trudeau, and I think it's noteworthy I know it's noteworthy talking about the impeccable reputation and whether that changes later this afternoon of David Johnston. It's absolutely unimpeachable. When we are looking to someone who will always put the country first and put the interests of Canadians at the core of everything he does, there is no better name than David Johnston, which makes it so astonishing, but also so clarifying to see the Conservative Party simply not interested in actually getting answers. Don't understand the last uh, the last sentence. They want answers. They've been asking for answers. They've asked for this inquiry. Um, that could have just been his words tripping over himself, but they want answers. But you've got the, the, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada saying, I had a meeting and I just what this guy was not taking this seriously. He was checking boxes. That's a problem. And whether that influences what we get later on today, still to be determined. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Our next guest is going to explore the idea of running for the Ontario Liberal leadership. Um, She'll make the rounds today. I believe we're her first stop, but this is exciting news. She's an eminently popular mayor. She was elected with a serious mandate, uh, to put it bluntly, in Mississauga, and she joins us now. She is Mayor Bonnie Crombie. You were just on with us last Wednesday, and you said wait and see, and we have waited, and now we get to see. What would you like to tell our audience today? Well, good morning. Thank you. I'm I'm saying I'm not running for mayor of Toronto, <laughs> but I'm serious. <laughs> There's some great candidates. I'm seriously looking at running for leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. I've been speaking with Mississaugans, of course, every day, and on, and Ontarians right across the province. And I hear them. I'm listening to them, and I I know that they're facing challenges each and every day. Uh, they're more vulnerable than they were. They are not meet their affordability issues are a key problem. Um, cutbacks that the government has made and underfunding of our key public services are an issue. I think the priorities are wrong for our province. 
uh, you know, we have a government focused on building a luxury spa rather than putting that money towards fixing our overburdened hospitals. These are key issues that have to be looked at. Uh, I think affordability, fixing the health care crisis, supporting our educators in our schools. These are issues that downloading to our municipalities, which I live each and every day are issues that I've been hearing from Ontarians. What are the big issues facing a party um, that had um, eight seats uh, in the last election? And now with Mitzi Hunter running for mayor, there are seven seats. This is a true, you know, we use this in sports terms. This is a rebuild job. Why would someone who has a great uh, level of popularity and to me could be mayor of Mississauga, maybe for as long as she wants. Why would you want to rebuild the, the, the provincial party here? Well, are you suggesting I'm a Hail Mary pass? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're not a Hail Mary candidate. You're, you're, many people think you'll be one of the, you'll Thank be one you. of the favorites in this race, of course. So I think public service is still a very noble calling, and I feel called by the people of Mississauga, the people of Ontario. I think the priority is to rebuild trust, rebuild trust in the Ontario Liberal Party. That would be my highest priority to make us a relevant party for today. Focus on rural areas, not only on urban areas, which the Liberal Party has done in the past. We have to rebuild the local ridings, rebuild the war chest, recruit strong candidates. And don't get me wrong, I've been speaking with former candidates we have some outstanding candidates and, and i hope many of them will run again but it's all about rebuilding trust with the people that we can manage their finances much the way i manage the uh, the finances at the city of mississauga you know i'm known to be very socially progressive but with a very tight fist i'm a i'm a fiscal conservative in a big way <laughs> you know if it's going to hit people in the pocketbook i'm often reluctant to spend the money so i think that people get the best of both world's governing experience with me, managing a very large budget, a very large city, um, yet with empathy for people and their struggles, their challenges that they face, and being able to make a difference. I can't always help them at the city. They come to me uh, for uh, issues that I'm just not accountable, not responsible for, and I hope that now I, I can be in a position where I can help them. Bonnie Crombie's joining us on Toronto Today. She's exploring running for the Ontario Liberal Leadership, joining us on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. What do you say to somebody from Mississauga? And you'll hear from many people saying, we love you. We don't want you to leave. And and we're worried you leaving if this all goes the right way for you and all the boxes get checked. What about us becoming independent? Does this at all derail that process? What's the explanation to them? I have had the honor of serving Mississaugans for nine years. And through that tenure, we have accomplished a lot, including fulfilling Hazel McCallion's legacy to make us an independent, single-tier city, a separate city. We've created jobs, uh, uh, built housing, improved our city services. I have offered Mississaugans strong, experienced mm. leadership, and I can bring those skills uh, to the Ontario Liberal Party. I had in a conversation with a resident from Mississauga when I was in Ottawa, and she said, you're my mayor. I, I have trust and confidence in you. You're transparent. You're accountable. You're a great fiscal manager. I want you to stay as my mayor. And I said, well, what if I can bring that skill set to other cities right across the province? And she looked at me and it looked like a light bulb had gone off. And she said, well, in that case, I would support you if you could bring that skill set uh, to serve the people from, from well, Ontario. But would that same person be worried that a rookie mayor would step in and, and navigate a complicated process with Mayor Brown with the province as well to, to make Mississauga more independent like we talked about last week? 
Well, a couple of things. First of all, I have great people at the city of Mississauga. I have an incredible team of counselors and experts uh, in, in our bureaucracy leading our city, our city manager and her team. But in addition, I'm not going anywhere yet. <laughs> this isn't mm. uh, for another nine months or so. So I will be here. I will be standing up for Mississauga and I will go into battle with uh, uh, to speak up for our city uh, when I'm called. You can count on it. Healthcare, massively important issue. And I talk with candidates, I talk with MPPs from all the parties all the time. I, I think, this is me saying this, I think if the Liberals, Bonnie, can figure out how to reframe healthcare somewhat and find a, an element of practicality along with compassion, I actually think they're going to win a lot of elections in a row. I think I think we need to tweak our system. I think we need to look to Europe somewhat and see what are the things they're doing right there. What are your expectations for a liberal party platform that kind of, like I said, comes up the middle and, and helps people who are a lot yeah. more moderate in this process? There are a lot of models from right across Europe and around the world that we can adopt. It's it's something that I'm looking forward to. The healthcare crisis will define us in the next election. It has to be solved. You know, speaking up for our healthcare workers uh, and the overburdened hospitals, the underfunded hospitals, is something I'm extremely worried about. And that's one of the reasons I'm looking seriously at this race. This the healthcare crisis across our province must be addressed, and that. That's why I'm considering putting my name forward. Robert Benzie wrote um, uh, about you yesterday and suggested there are Ford insiders worried about you. Um, and and the uh, it's you're de- deemed as an existential threat. And I'm sure we've all been called lots of things in public life, in politics, and in the media. But maybe you haven't been called an existential threat before. <laughs> do you view those? Com- are, are you even suspicious about those comments? Like, do you think you make Doug Ford worried if if you win this? Well, I hope so. <laughs> Uh, I've never been called an existential threat. I work hard. I'm concerned for people. I care about people. I care about their finances. I'm care- I care about this province and the direction it's going. I'll bring forward my own vision, um, and that's where I'll leave this. There's also the sense of uh, the idea of moving too far to the left, and that's the concept there. And, and there's always going to be tweaks and, and maneuvers that parties do make. Do you need to be a more centrist liberal leader? Are you looking for more centrist candidates? You say you got a lot of people that that have run already. You'd be interested in them running before. But I'd make the point they didn't win last time under the last platform or the platform before that. So so do you need to move more towards that that fleshy middle there? I am absolutely a centrist. I have some strong business experience before entering politics. As I've mentioned, I have a tight fiscal grasp um, on the city of Mississauga. I think our policies went much too far. Uh, For my comfort level, I would manage from the center, possibly even the center right. uh, And that's where I would expect to develop my platform after listening to the people of the province. Last one, you followed somebody who was mayor of your city until she was 93. Just just a legendary, iconic politician. We all know that. And we just lost her a few months ago. It, I, we acknowledge that's incredibly rare, very unusual. Do you aspire to a lot more elections, many more years in politics? You, you've like you've never stepped aside and then come right back. You've been go, 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 like like looking through the, the front windshield, not the rearview mirror. Do you want to do this a lot longer? Certainly, I think I have a lot to contribute. I have a lot of energy, as you know. I have a vision for our province, and uh, I'd like to fulfill that vision. I have a mentor, a friend, iconic, legendary Hazel McCallion, who didn't miss a beat. She continued on till she was 92. I remember she called me into her office one day and said, 
you know, I, I, I'm thinking of retiring. And I looked at her and I said, Mayor McCallion, you're 92 years old. God bless you. You deserve some retirement. And, you know, then encouraged me to put my name forward uh, to run for mayor. So I was always grateful for her confidence in me. And I never wanted to let her down. And I won't let her down. Bonnie Crombie, she's the mayor of Mississauga. She's exploring running for the Ontario Liberal leadership. I know we'll have more conversations. I so appreciate you making us your first stop this morning and, and have a good rest of the day. Thank you very kindly. Have a great day. Bonnie Crombie. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We welcome in um, Vice President at uh, George Brown College. They're right next door to us here at uh, Queen's Key. Uh, and he's former Toronto City Councilor who left City Hall. Much to many people's chagrin. Uh, I mean that. Joe Cressy is here uh, on uh, Toronto Today. It's nice to have you in. It's really good to be here. I, not, leaving was not to my chagrin. I'm pretty thrilled with having. Are you? Th- is there any element of the fight and the and the battle? And you don't turn City Hall on on your uh, computer and be like, oh, I wish I was there voting on this on this measure right now at eight thirty at night. No, I will tell you the the fight, the battle, the toxicity, <laughs> the Twitter debate today. PM, I don't miss any of that. The what what I did find working at the city, this all consuming sense of purpose, every issue you dealt with, these were big, important issues. And I loved that. But all of everything else around it, the noise, the fight, the endless scrutiny. No, I'm happy to be away from that and taking care of a three year old at home. Can you ignore that, though? Can do you think some people are just too into it? They're too into responding to every email and responding to to Twitter and, and playing that sort of social media game. Can you sort of tunnel vision that out and, and just focus on the job and, and the purpose and the constituents. You know, at, at a really high level, um, I always say to people who are thinking about getting into politics that you need a degree of thick skin to be able to yeah. tune out what is the irresponsible or unacceptable commentary. But what you actually need is really deep empathy because behind people's anger or angst or those darts and pitchforks they're throwing is a real issue that you need to help resolve. And so if you close yourself off to any type of disgruntled um, commentary, you're missing the ability to solve the issue. You really actually need to listen deeper, just as you need a bit of thick skin for the endless commentary on Twitter. Mm. Is, is this something at all that you see as you're taking a respite, but still in the back of your mind, in the recesses of your brain and your heart specifically, it's something you could re-engage again in some day is, is public service and politics? For me personally, elected office, no, I... I I intend to never return. Um, I, I That's not much of a campaign slogan, but we'll take you <laughs> we'll take you at face value. I, I loved my eight years at City Hall and the issues I dealt with in, in leading the public health file. Um, mm. But I have a view of politics, which is that you get in, you contribute, you learn as much as you can, you give as much as you can, and then you move on to contribute elsewhere. And so for me, I, I have moved on. And yes, I'm contributing elsewhere, but I'm also I am home five to six nights a week for bath time with yeah, a toddler. Yeah. And and that's just more important to me right now. Eventually, again, I'm just telling you, 10 years from now, he'll want you out of the house and he'll be like, go out with some friends, go to the pub, go for a run. I want, I want the house to myself. You do realize that's going to happen, that you and your wife will be sort of pushed. Take that vacation well, and like have that date night. That's going to happen. You're not, I know you're, dec- you're a decade away from that, but it'll come. Greg, if you're pushing me for whether 10 years from now I'm going to be open to vacations with my wife, the answer is yes. I am very keen on that. 
ignoring vacations with the wife to return to politics. Yeah. Not so much. You might have a unique lens into, and we're going to talk about the, the debate tomorrow um, at George Brown, which I'm ex- I'm excited you're moderating, and I was honored to be asked to participate, even, even in a, a, a small capacity, but I'm excited to talk about what we're doing tomorrow. Um, you'd have a good lens into... Uh, Olivia Chow's comeback to politics as well. And and you ran in the federal by-election as well when she uh, decided to leave federal politics to, well, leave politics in general. Um, Olivia's popularity. Let's talk about what you attribute that to. I think people wondered so far after being out of the game nine years whether her name would resonate with voters. It's so early. There's five weeks. There's five weeks left. Um, but she's resonating with people. What What do you attribute most of that to? Well, and I would start with with noting Olivia Chow is a very good friend. In fact, most of the candidates are good yep. friends. But I've a, I have a very long history with Olivia, managed some of her campaigns. Listen, I, I think there's two elements here that I see. One is she is widely known. Um, she has been around the Toronto political scene uh, in the trenches for 30 years. And so she starts from a level of name recognition. She is a known quantity that is a benefit. The second thing that I see is in this campaign, there is a wide, there is a, a wide recognition across the political left and right that things aren't going as well as they should be in this city, right? People have different solutions for how we tackle the housing mm-hmm. crisis or infrastructure or transit, but the status quo is no longer acceptable on the left or the right. And she's running a campaign predicated on change that after 12 years of a certain type of political administration, she's offering a very different type on a progressive slant. And and so I think those two elements, the change narrative coupled with her being a known quantity have put her in good stead. But I think, it's, again, I would come back to all of the candidates, whether they're on the left or on the right, they're all talking about change, whether it's fixing services, tackling public safety, building affordable housing. Nobody's saying, stay just as we are today, Toronto. They're all making the case for we need change. It's just what type of change. Joe Cressy's our guest in studio with us on Toronto Today. One more, and then we got a break, but we'll come back and talk about the debate a, a ton, obviously. Um, is is municipal politics tends to swing more left than right? 47 of the 50 biggest U.S. cities have a Democratic mayor, for example. What do you attribute that to? It it, it feels like, well, in, in essence, at the end of the day, there's nothing to download municipal costs to. And you have to provide services for your constituents. Is it some of that? But I mean, cities just tend to be more urban areas tend to be more left leaning than right. And the further out you go from the city, then you have maybe some some balance politically. What, what do you see for, for that being the reason? Well, I think, listen, as somebody who's spent my life in downtown Toronto, lived, born, raised, worked, um, the magic of cities come from our public spaces. The magic of cities are the delivery of the social infrastructure, community centers, libraries, parks. The magic of cities comes from our ability to successfully deliver hard infrastructure, the roads for bikes, walking, driving. And so it is fundamentally in the business of delivering service. And so traditionally, those who would say we need to deliver less service are less popular than those who say we're going to deliver more community centers, more parks, mm-hmm. more social housing. And so I, it's, my, it's my view at the municipal level that it tends to skewer towards the progressive slant because the progressive side of the ledger are arguing for investing in more service. And that's what makes cities magical are the services we have. Mm.
Uh, it's great to have Joe Cressy in, vice president of George Brown College. Uh, he'll chair a debate tomorrow on uh, the housing crisis in the city. First of all, you bet, let, let's let's go one more on on you, uh, Joe Cressy. You've done the job. Tell me about the job. Any surprises to to being high up with a community college, working with the youth of today? Should we be worried? I have teenagers. I I worry. Should we be worried? Are they are they great people? Does every generation worry about the next generation coming? And do we over worry and over concern ourselves with what's coming up? The, the, the future's in good hands. Is it? It is. No, listen, I joined George Brown <laughs> College a year ago. And, you know, we got 30,000 students in 180 programs. And whether it's childcare workers or skilled trade professionals in the trades, I tell you, the future's looking pretty good with the youth coming up today. Yeah, I like, no, they, they, they look very, I drive by, they look very focused. They're the same as me. Uh, they can't quite understand when the construction guys outside here hold up a stop sign and you're like, what am I, what am I stopping for? Can you actually give me a ticket? Like, what is your level of authority? You're going to moderate a uh, debate tomorrow at George Brown focused on the housing crisis. And you probably hear from students, but I think, you know, student housing, um, professional housing, senior housing. This is it. We're finally putting this, I think, on the front page. I think it's the issue of the campaign because every other the jigsaw puzzle of the election, Joe, kind of intersects housing, intersects with transit, transit intersects with safety, um, safety intersects with what we do with law enforcement and police. We saw the federal government change bail requirements to at least, you know, make us feel a little more comfortable with our surroundings. But the housing crisis is just first and foremost um, the issue for Toronto voters. And in, in housing and housing affordability affects every person in the city at every age, almost right up the income level. So we, we see a situation right now where if you're on low income, we don't have enough subsidized places for you. Mm-hmm. If you are a working professional, a working professional, whether you're a teacher or, or a nurse, you can't afford to own or buy in this city today. If you're a student coming to study here, you can't find a student residence, let alone an apartment. And so for a city to succeed, a city to thrive, not just as an equitable city, but a prosperous city, people need to be able to live here, which means we need to tackle housing as a city on every rung of the housing ladder from deeply affordable subsidized housing to mid-market housing for those to rent or buy. And, and so tomorrow, uh, a group of nine organizations have come together from, the, from ResCon and Build, the associations representing the constructors and, and builders, to nonprofits like Habitat to Humanity, to George Brown College, to put housing on the agenda collectively. Um, and I'm thankful to see that all the candidates, all hundred and whatever number of them, but all the candidates, including the six top candidates, are all talking housing. Mm. You must hear from... Um faculty at George Brown that echo everything you just said about being able to 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 not just buy in Toronto but to rent in Toronto we you probably have have them drive in or take public transit in from quite a ways away um, to work at the college they love doing what they do they love the opportunity to to, to teach our young people um, but it's it's put it's pushed them to the outside loops of our city hasn't it well, if you look at George Brown College, where I am, so we, we are a college with three campuses, primarily downtown. Housing currently for, for George Brown College would be a strategic vulnerability because mm-hmm. our students, but also our staff, faculty and our staff, um, can't afford to live here. And so if we as a college are going to turn housing into a strategic opportunity, we need to ensure that not only do we have housing for students, but we need to start looking at housing 
for our staff as well as a workforce housing model. We've seen this in other major cities. New York, for example, New York University delivers. They provide housing to their staff and faculty. And, and that's a talent recruitment and retention strategy. But this is, this is talent recruitment and retention, not just for universities and colleges. It's for the city as a whole. If we want to attract and retain the best talent in the world, people need to be able to live here. Well, how many international students do you have at George Brown? Uh, so we have 30,000 full-time students. Of yeah. those, 40% are international. Uh, so you break that down, that's just over 10,000. Um, and so for our international students, it's not just being able to provide a affordable housing, but housing that has the supports for students who are coming from around no the world yeah. to enable them to settle. But I've come back to this this principle of talent recruitment and retention. So here, universities and colleges, from U of T to George Brown, we're thinking about 30 years from now, how do we have housing for faculty and, stu- and staff? But that we need to think like that as a city. 30 years from now, how do we have enough housing and the right type of housing to ensure that people can live here to work here and that we can recruit talent here? And so housing, this is where I say it's an issue that crosses the economic spectrum and the political spectrum. Because we need subsidized affordable housing, we need mid-market rental and ownership housing, and fundamentally, like it's just the simple: if you can't afford to live here, the city can't succeed. Joe Cressy is our guest in studio with us. Uh, the Toronto Mayoralty housing debate takes place at George Brown College tomorrow at the campus. Uh, Joe's going to moderate it, of course, uh, and uh, I'm on a panel of three. You are it one says of prominent the journalists, Joe, prominent, and I want to take issue com- with prominent journalists. But okay, I, I'll take it. I'll take it for once. Well, it, uh, I'll, I'll take a you compliment. Know, we, we did argue to say very prominent <laughs> journalists, super very, prominent, super, since everybody calls everything super something now. Journalists. How many? How many problems do you see in Toronto echoing across? You mentioned New York. Big cities, I just think, are facing big city problems right now. Some of that's just where we are in in the space and time. Some of that is post-pandemic. If We gave people options to work from home. We juggled people's routines. You and I, I don't think we argued about pandemic restrictions, but we did make the point together that they are certainly taking people out of comfort zones and out of routine. And it was never going to get back on track within six months or 12 months. But I, I worry. I don't want to think that something is a Toronto specific problem. I think these are problems every big city in North America is facing. Am I on track? Oh, Listen, I think the major issues facing the city, whether it's from housing affordability to the, the fiscal challenges this city is grappling with, to the recovery of downtown districts following COVID restrictions, uh, to issues of homelessness and substance use. Every one of these issues, these are the same issues that nearly every major Western metropolitan city are facing. Yeah. And so you can say two things in the same breath in, in Toronto. One, that this is a spectacular city. It really is a spectacular city. People want to live here. People are coming here in droves. But in saying that, you can also acknowledge this is a spectacular city that faces big 21st century challenges. And so as we come into an election, I'll tell you, in every election... Um, you have to articulate the problems that you're going to fix. And so as a result, it's, it's sometimes easy to get down on the magnitude of problems in this city. There are problems. They are common to other major cities. We can solve them, but don't lose sight of how spectacular this city is in the process. So I know we'll try it tomorrow. We're going to have uh, Mark Saunders, Josh Mallow, Mitzi Hunter, Anna Bilo, Brad Bradford, Olivia Chow. Um, there's uh, Matt Elliott wrote even about it in the Toronto Star today, how I think the voters, and, and I, I want to know if you concur, 
we need to see things more costed out. You just mentioned it. Municipal politics is sort of the, the, the last stop. And and so you have to provide services and you want to promise citizen services. But we need the Olivia Chow's and the Anna Bylaws and the Brad Bradford's to tell us what things are going to cost. They need to be honest about property taxes. They need to be honest about, um, you, you know, you know what kind of deficits the city is, uh, what kind of deficits the city is running right now. It's not it's it's never mind not sustainable. It's just it's just not practical for the future. Yeah. I mean, listen, fundamentally, and I spend eight years at City Hall, we deal with the budget every year. You have to ask yourself the question, what is the city we want to build? And then how do we pay for it? Yeah. And you need to answer both questions. What is your vision for where you want the city to go? And how do you propose to pay for it? And you got to answer both of those questions. Listen, we're, we're in many ways, traditionally in a municipal election, it take traditionally, we have this by-election, it takes place in October, and after Labor Day, the public starts to pay attention. We usually say after Labor Day is the sprint. Well, in this by-election, I would I think we're now approaching the second phase. The the May long weekend is over. Yeah. Now we get to the phase of oh, there's an election to people paying attention to the election. I think the Leafs being out of the playoffs ironically helps focus people's attention on the on the election. None of our teams playoffs. are playing very well right None now, of our Joe. Teams so are not, yeah, we're all so we're all let's focus pivoting. on the election because the Jays <laughs> have lost five straight. Um, but I think this is mm. in a by-election after the Labor Day weekend. Now we get serious. Now the candidates get serious to articulate their visions and their plans to pay for it. And we as residents of the city start to pay close attention to who do we want to take us forward. I, I got another minute here, but I want to know when that person becomes mayor in late June, how hard do they have to work on getting on the same page with with the Ford government, the Trudeau government? These are critical things because this just can't. The housing crisis, transit safety, none of this can be done just in a in a municipal bubble. The province and the federal government. There has to be some. It's the one thing John Tory did a fair bit. He went and asked, and he went and asked, and he went and demanded, and he criticized both Trudeau and Ford, kind of in the same breath sometimes when they weren't giving Toronto enough. We have to have that advocate here, don't we? Listen. I- the city of Toronto and, and major cities in this country need a new deal for cities. And we ultimately, whoever the mayor is, they need to go out there and advocate for and secure that deal with the federal government and provincial government. But whoever the next mayor is, listen, they will walk into a scenario where they have 25 members of city council they'll need to work with and forge consensus on. And then we have two higher orders of government, the province and the federal government, who you need to push, but also bring them along with you. That's not an easy task to push just as you want to bring them in, but that's going to be the focus for this next mayor is to get those two other orders of government on side without pushing them away. Mm. I'll get to talk to you a little bit later on today, but tomorrow we'll be front and center for the Toronto mayoralty housing debate moderated by Joe Cressy. And How's that very sound? prominent journalist. Uh, moderately. Brady. Uh, Brady. Thank you. Very Joe. prominent. Really appreciate that. Yeah, it's early. <laughs> you, you've had enough caffeine that you that people might actually believe you when you say that. Uh, thanks for coming in. Really appreciate it. I, you know, you kind of had to come in the same direction, but I appreciate you coming in extra early for us. Anytime. Greg. Joe Cressy with us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Best part of a three-day weekend is a four-day work week. And you get a four-day work week that begins tonight with an opening night with the iconic Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. Is it just Rock Hall now? Whatever. Janet Jackson playing at Budweiser Stage. And in from uh, Live Nation, he's Executive VP Industry Relations, although I've never never actually seen a business card. And he's also, you know, you're a Toronto radio legend. You've been there, done that. Whoa, whoa. Won the battles. Legend, my favorite le- word. Le- le- well, legend doesn't mean you're dead. Not no, yet. No. Maybe it does. 
Maybe it does. Well, um, I it felt could be that. true or not true. So in this case, it is true. Joey Scaleri is with us from Live Nation Canada. You got the you got great weather, clear skies, big show tonight. Hold on, you say radio legend, but nobody knows Joey Scaleri, Joey Vendetta. Okay, fine. Yes, it, which I, I used to hide from the authorities for many years. <laughs> that's never been actually on a driver's license, nor have maybe you voted twice in certain elections. I know we won't get into well, politics. Well, as a dual I citizen, I, I've done it in the U.S. <laughs> as well. Let's not get into election. Were you fraud. living there during uh, Bush Gore in 2000? I was. It was crazy then. Were you living yeah, there then? Yeah, but, uh, but I wasn't sober then, so okay, I don't really great, remember fantastic. it. To and be you're quite not honest. now, yeah, so that's wonderful. Um, big, like, I think this summer, I, I, you know, I think people say this all the time. I've never seen anything quite like it. This is a combination of a couple, you know, obviously a couple COVID summers where the concert industry was was wobbly and we didn't know what we could do and where we could go do it. And some of that was our own concerns and some of that was restrictions. And some of that's artists just sitting waiting for that time. So it's kind of the those things intersect. I've never seen this many shows in one summer in Toronto outside. No, it is a record-breaking year. There's going to be over 70 shows. And look, Budweiser Stage has become a destination venue. And you know how much of a concert fan you are. We yeah. talk about it all the time. But I worked in the U.S. I lived in Los Angeles, and I got to go to the Hollywood Bowl, which is an iconic venue. It's a destination. People are like, I Bucket have list. to go to the Hollywood Bowl once. Yeah. So I used to get to go there all the time. And having been a guy who left Toronto and went to another city and then came back, it hadn't really dawned on me how much of a destination Budweiser stage is, right? It's the only venue of its type in Canada. It's on the water. It's in nature. It's got such a beautiful backdrop. And it is a real destination for people as much as the CN Tower is in Niagara Falls is. I, I never really thought of it that way. But then when you talk to the fans, because ultimately that's why we do this. It's for the people that go to the shows and raise their arms in the air and have 17,000 people singing the same song. That's why we do it. And Budweiser Stage has become such a destination and a, and a rite of passage. And, and you know, to a, a little bit of a lesser degree, because it's smaller, RBC Echo Beach right next door. Mm -hmm. Another venue where we do six, 7,000 capacity shows. But Budweiser is around 17,000. And this summer is going to be a record-breaking year. And the lineup is is really unbelievable. <clears throat> it's Are you getting choked up yeah, over no, the line? I don't blame you one bit. Well, I haven't seen you in a long time, so I'm <laughs> starting That's to tear. That's what it is. I'm starting to tear up a little bit. But, <laughs> you know, as I said to you off the air, the best thing to do is to get the Live Nation app, right? You get the Live Nation app, and you sign up, and it tells you everything. Mm -hmm. you sometimes need. you can buy tickets uh, a day ahead of time, even. There's a live. There's sometimes pre-sales. Yeah, no, no. There well. are, they're generally always pre-sales. But, but when you need information, you go to... The Live Nation app and the general information gives you know it gives you where the venue is located. It gives you the bag policy. You know this year there's no backpacks anymore. You know we want fans to be safe and we want it to be a seamless entry. So all the tickets are paperless. Everything is on your phone. We all live on our phones now. Whether I'm not going to get into a debate on whether that's good or bad for us, but it is reality. We're always on our phones. And the tickets will be on your phone. No more paper tickets. But you can get an NFT. If you go on the Live Nation app and you want to have a, a memory of the show, you can get NFT versions of your tickets. The bags now, you have to have a clear plastic bag. It doesn't exceed 12 by 6 by 12. I always see you around town yeah. carrying your clear That's plastic bag. That's one of my favorite, my Chanel plastic bags. So yeah. here's a couple of the other things that I was looking through the Live Nation app. And you can find this on LiveNation.com as well. So you can bring... Prepackaged food. I didn't know this. You could bring small collapsible umbrellas. This is something that I was unaware of. One sealed plastic bottle of water. A non-professional camera. 
Anything I shoot with is non-professional. <laughs> non-professional. But, but home, homemade food wrapped in plastic. I can't bring a tripod in. No, you can't bring a okay, tripod good in. Good to but, know. But look, tonight with a hot dog, I can yeah, bring in. Opening okay, night with, with Janet Jackson, yeah. who hasn't played here in a long time, and Ludacris is opening the show. If you want to get there early, we have the the Corona Oasis Bar, which what we like to do is try to help young artists, right? It's really important to develop artists. And people sit around and say, ah, oh, there's, you know, everything's old and all these old artists. And then you then you look at some of the, the artists that are playing Budweiser stage this year. Post Malone, relatively new. Rufus DeSoul, sold out. Charlie Puth. Yeah, Charlie, June, Char- right? Charlie Puth. Okay. Uh, yeah. Boy Genius, Dermot Kennedy. The lineup is incredible. You got everything from Arctic Monkeys to ZZ Top. See what I did there? A to Z. Yeah. That was, okay. So, but the but the country season this year, Morgan Wallen's doing three nights. This guy's been number one on the Billboard charts for for months. Then you got Shania Twain, Chris Stapleton, Eric Church. You know, ZZ Top is playing with Leonard Skinner, mm-hmm. The Cure, Robert Plant, Sting. And then if you like hard rock, you got everything from Pantera and Billy Talent to Rob Zombie with Alice Cooper. And I know you're going to be there for this one. 50 Cent. 50 Cent hasn't toured in I don't know how long. And that show is virtually sold out. And Snoop Dogg's going to be there along with Wiz Khalifa. And then it's not truly a Canadian summer if you don't have Dallas Green with City and Color playing. Alan Doyle's going to be there. And then Blue Rodeo, who are playing, I think, their one millionth show at Budweiser's. Blue Rodeo show on a Saturday night. It happens every year. But it's crazy how many people ask me about that show. Hey, can I get tickets to Blue Rodeo? Blue Rodeo is such a tradition at Budweiser stage. So I think what's happened is, and as you said, look, we lost a couple of years. And especially with what what the regulations and the laws were in Canada, the U.S. was open. People were touring yeah. in the U.S., and then a lot of the artists didn't come here because well, they had to cross the border. They had to be vaxxed. It was, it was very confusing, so they didn't bother. You got to plan. I mean, the, fir- uh, the first time I was in a car crossing the U.S. border last year was June. You got to plan these tours out. You got to plan a June, July, August tour out in January, February, and March at the latest to make sure venues work with, you know, NHL, NBA playoffs, all that sure. stuff. Just yeah. any, any, you know. And so last year at this time, people said, I don't get it. We're all these artists. But there were a number of artists that just they couldn't risk booking Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. It last winter because of where we were at that particular given time. So so there's the potential to do this uh, to do this now. I got two minutes here. Tell me you mentioned it. People coming from out of town. I can't tell you what it meant to come up from London and go to a show when it was Molson Amphitheater, Bud Stage Now. I remember we rented a van. Ten of us went to see R.E.M. on the Monster Tour. R.E.M. hadn't toured for about six, seven years at one point. But that you're mentioning all these country shows. You got people that come from Timmins, Barrie. Like this, we do take Bud Stage for granted here in Toronto because we're Torontonians and it's just there all the time. But when you make your pilgrimage, drive two, three hours to come to a show from Sarnia, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Yeah, as I was saying, when you live in another city like I did and you get to go to the Hollywood Bowl, the Hollywood Bowl is a world-famous venue. Well... Budweiser Stage is definitely a Canada famous venue and yeah. also North America. And when you when you look what you just said about driving in from Sarnia or driving in from Timmins or driving in from London, it's so important for people to gather, to congregate. You have seventeen thousand people singing the same song on the same night. And whether it's raining and you're all wet like you were at Duran Duran when you were texting me, come I out with an umbrella. It was raining also. Yeah, you yeah. mentioned so, the wetness. Yeah, you know, the bottom line is Budweiser stage has become a destination. And so an important destination for so many people. 
All I know is that if you have not been to a concert there, you haven't experienced a concert in its optimal setting. It's on the water. It's got an incredible view of the skyline. And whether it's a, a hard rock show or, as I said, a country show or a pop show or a classic rock show, we have something for everybody. Hip-hop, it's, it's amazing. And then, the, you know, the other thing is the, the, the different genres of music globally have exploded, and that's being reflected in the mm-hmm. lineup. But as I said, record-breaking year, over 70 shows, and just as important a venue to this country as some of the iconic venues are in the U.S., whether it's the Hollywood Bowl, whether it's Red Rocks, whether it's the Gorge Jones outside Beach of Seattle, Jones one, right? Beach. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, as somebody who's traveled the world, there aren't many venues that are, and I hate to say better, but I mean venues that stand out like Budweiser stage. It's a massive summer. You can go to LiveNation.com, find out uh, and, and find out all of Bud Stage's shows. Getting to do what I do, I'm so fortunate because I see people having a good time, and that's my favorite thing in the world, is watching people be happy at a concert and put their arms in the air. Because it's it, for many people, as you said before the break, it is the most important night of their week, of their month, of their year, for some people of their life. And it depends who they see. And they you, plan you, and yeah. they work up to it. And listen, you have to put an event like that together in your life, right? It involves logistics. And for a lot of people, it involves babysitters. It involves getting the tickets, lining up. Your, it's not an easy thing to do for some people to get to go to a show. So I appreciate when I see them and see how happy they are and how much they enjoy the venue that, that Budweiser stage is. But you hit on something I always say. I don't mind spending money on a concert because I know I'm going to leave happy. Sporting events are really risky moments. They I can was, make you miserable I when you at, leave those sporting yeah, events. I was at Game 5. Oh, uh, Leafs, yeah, yeah. Panthers. I didn't leave happy, and nobody in that building left happy. Guess what? <laughs> Tonight after Janet Jackson and Ludacris, almost everybody's going to leave. Listen, if you get into a fight with your significant other, maybe you don't leave happy, but you definitely enjoyed the show. And Look, a couple of things I, I, I want to touch upon as far as the entry into the venue and what you can and cannot bring. As I said, you can go to LiveNation.com and you should download the Live Nation app. It's actually fantastic. has all the yeah. information you need and it'll tell you shows that are coming that you may miss, that you may not be aware of because we're extremely busy. People don't pay attention. Then all of a sudden is, oh my God, I didn't know that Bruce Springsteen was coming. Oh my goodness, Boy Genius is playing. I wish I would have seen them. Oh, 50 Cent is coming. You, well, you'll get that all in the Live yeah. Nation app, but... When you go to the show, it's mobile ticketing. There's no longer a physical ticket. So you download your ticket to your phone. Everybody's got their phone with them at all, all times. It's, it's strapped to their hip. And then there's a new bag policy this year for safety and efficiency. Backpacks no longer allowed. So you can check the website, livenation.com, for details. But you can bring, as Greg said, I'll be bringing my clear plastic yeah. Chanel this Suitcases evening. Suitcases not allowed, yeah. and but you can bring your own food. Yeah, and we're a cashless venue. And again, what, right. we, what we've got, look, and I... I <laughs> Look, as an Italian, I, I like my cash. <laughs> so having a cashless venue for somebody like me is like, hey, here, I, can I? It, it's, it's something that you have to be aware of because if you come there and you're packing some hundreds, you're not going to get change. I'm sure they'll take your money, but they're not going to give you any back. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this when it came into existence as Molson Amphitheater, I remember going to the first show. Brian Adams opened the venue in 1995. I, I broadcast from there. Did you really? When that I was night? on Q107. Yep. Um, I know people, uh, you know, sometimes people don't like change. We used to have the rotating stage. 
You could sit on the lawn. It, it yeah, was a was really intimate forum. atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, it was great. But tell tell the audience what you think this did, not just for downtown Toronto. We had Kingswood. I liked seeing shows at Kingswood, but this really became an elite venue. This wasn't, uh, uh, no offense to Vaughn, like if you were going up there for the day, ride the rides. I saw some hey man, great Kingswood, Kingswood great. shows. Great I, Kingswood I, shows. I emceed the final triumph show at Kingswood. I saw David oh, Lee Roth Did they there. do Magic Power? And yes, of course they did. <laughs> and so, as opposed to Magic Power. So, look, Live Nation has invested a lot of money in this venue. The province of Ontario, there was a press conference a few weeks ago. This is the crown jewel of Ontario place because it's the one thing, whether whatever you lean politically, pretty much everybody loves music and everybody loves live music. So Budweiser Stage has become the mecca for live music in this country. It's such a destination and it's something that we've really paid attention to is the sustainability aspect of this as we become much more conscious about our environment. Look, Budweiser stage is situated on the water. It's on the lake. There's birds there. There's fish. There's those things that you need to be aware of from a corporate standpoint as a company and sustainability continues to, to be a real priority for Budweiser stage. We want to reduce the environmental impact. Mm -hmm. So we have a waste diversion program. We have a zero waste team that sorts on site to, to improve our diversion. And we're working towards the goal of eliminating single use plastics. And we have a new partner in flow water, eco-friendly packaging, uh, energy consumption. We're currently tracking our energy consumption and carbon footprint, and we'll use this data to implement further measures. So again, something that people don't think about 17,000 people. There's definitely a lot of trash after the show but what, artists have really been prominent um this is oh, a big thing yeah. for chris martin and coldplay yeah um you and i were both at the depeche mode show martin gore made a video ahead of time like the green nation touring program is really important to artists yes it to is not Look, leave 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 a more of a like leave less of a footprint instead of more one behind when you do a show yeah pay it forward right there's yeah. there's going to be people that come after us and if we just you know leave a planet that that is in real trouble look we know that there's trouble on, around every turn but when you leave a concert you want to not only feel good about the music, but feel good about the experience and, and the way you you impacted the environment. And then, you know, look, the other thing, it's fun, right? And we've Budweiser Stage has become a real premium venue on a lot of levels. And we've got a, a couple of new partners this year. You know, one of them I'm excited about because I love KFC. So KFC is going to be there now with the big crunch sandwich and they have chicken fingers and popcorn chicken. And then they have the Bud Stage burger, which we've had for a couple of years and a signature hot dog. And there's vegetarian yeah. options because there's people out there that are that are vegetarians. Right. And if you if you like to drink, we have well juices and lemonade, which you can Put some alcohol in, have a drink, or you don't have to have alcohol if you no one will don't, make you don't want to drink. No, no one will force well, you. No, it's not a policy yet. No, it's not and, mandated. And then you know, Corona Sun Brews also non-alcoholic. And then you know, the other thing I wanted to mention is that, as I said, Corona the we have the Corona Oasis Bar. Get there early, stay late. You're going to see some great bands. And if you want to have a ready to drink option, then we've got we've got neutral juiced. So mm. there's all kinds of offerings now at this venue as we continue to up our game because the fans expect more. The crazy thing is, look, you go to shows now, remember what it's like 20 years ago versus now in terms of the amenities, the VIP experiences. It's just the whole it, game has it, changed. I always think about big shows. Isn't it amazing at one point we just had general admission shows where you'd wait 
and then everybody would sprint in and elbow each other out of the way, and and now we don't have that. Like it's cra- now. There's some sometimes at the front of Bud Stage. There's a little bit of a general mission area. Yeah, there's a, yeah, there's dance a pit area. for certain tonight. There is. I didn't like the reserved. moshing year. I didn't. I got a lot of elbows in the back and Doc Martens to the ribs, and it, well, the, dude, the '90s were just hard. When on, I was on at the that body. last to that last Barry Manilow I, tour, I, I took an elbow <laughs> in the eye. <laughs> A lot of moshing at Luke Bryan later in the summer. Those and the, and the country boots. The you know some. Yeah, of those you don't want to get those up. The you know what heels or boots. Forget it. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So LiveNation.com is where people can go. You recommend the app. We got Janet Jackson starting it tonight. You want to give away? You, you you've well, got cool. the tickets falling out of your pocket. Crowded houses Saturday you know night what I'm with like? Neil Finn. You know what I'm like? You ever watch Fast Times at Ridgemount High? Damone. The character who was at yes. the mall. That's me. Of course I do. I got two to Cheap Trick, baby. You got to see them. Although Cheap Trick's not coming this year. But you're yes. not going to sing the Dream Police. A crowded House. Yes. Don't Dream It's Over are playing Saturday night, I believe, That's if I'm right. not mistaken. And yeah. you're going to that show. Yes. So I asked I, to introduce the band, yeah. but right now my request has fallen upon well, deaf think, ears, which is not you, great for a concert. Well, I don't think you have to introduce them. They all know each other already, but that was very nice of you. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Joey Scaleri from uh, Live Nation.